Hi, everybody, and welcome to Season 3 of Adapting. We're recording today on September 7, 2022. My guest today is Shuki Taylor of M Squared, the Institute of Experiential Jewish Education. Now, for those of you who don't know, Shuki and I are good friends and colleagues, and we get into a conversation about the origins of experiential Jewish education, which talk about what this concept means at a 30,000 foot, at a 20,000 foot, and then how it impacts Jewish educators on the ground. There's a lot that we agree on, a lot that we actually disagree on, and I'm really urging listeners as they listen to today's episode to really take note of the points in which we do have differences of opinion and try and work out what's underlying those differences. Sometimes they seem like they're high level and sometimes they're actually really low level in terms of the impact that they have on the lives of learners who we interact with. But ultimately, this conversation is contributing to the evolving literature and the evolving research and data about experiential Jewish education, which I should remind all of you, even as you listen today, a decade or two decades ago, wasn't even spoken about in such terms. So I urge you all to enjoy and listen to today's conversation and hope to hear from you all in the future with any feedback that you might have. This is Adapting, the future of Jewish education, a podcast from the Jewish Education Project where we explore the big questions, challenges, and successes that define Jewish education. I'm David Breifman. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Adapting. I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Shuki Taylor, live from Jerusalem. And I think today is going to be a really fascinating conversation as we probe the question about what young people or what people in general ought to know when it comes to Jewish education. Shuki has spent a lot of time speaking and thinking about this question. He is one of the people who co-authored an article about the shoulds of Jewish education, which appears in a recent edition of the Sapir Journal from the Maimonides Fund. And Shuki is the founder and CEO of M Squared, the Institute of Experiential Jewish Education. So I'm sure we're going to have lots to talk about today. Welcome, Shuki. Thank you. Thank you, David, and for the entire Jewish Education Project team for having me on your show. I'm a big fan. Well, let's get the conversation started. And I really want to talk to you about this thing called experiential Jewish education, which you know that I've thought about a lot and so have you. So let's start by getting your definition or understanding of what it is to talk about experiential Jewish education. So one of the things that I love most about this question is that it's been so long since I last heard it. When you go back 15, 20 years, there was a a turning point where a group of really smart people Barry Hazan, Joe Reamer, you and others started asking, what is experiential Jewish education? About 12 years ago, I was speaking to Dr. Barry Hazan about this, and he gave me the best advice. He said, stop thinking about what it is and just do it. And the fact that we haven't heard this question in a really long time is probably a good thing because it means that we're doing it instead of just talking about it. In terms of the actual question, like how would we define, how do I and others at M Square define what is experiential Jewish education? The definition that we give is that it's the infusion of Jewish values into meaningful and engaging experiences that can impact the formation of Jewish identity. That's the definition. But I want to also point out that there are two other really important attributes to this. One is that experiential education, the content is not focused on knowledge acquisition and that participation in it is not mandatory. So its content areas are going to be focused on the exploration of morals and values and participation in it is governed by choice, which means that personal meaning making and the cultivation of individual and communal identity are inherent to it. The second thing worth mentioning about it is how we relate to the word experiential. Now, very often we think about experiential as fun 
active, dynamic. And I want to suggest that experiential actually refers to how we engage with the values and the ideas that we set forth. And especially what I mean by that is the shift from talking about ideas to actually doing or experimenting with these ideas. In good experiential Jewish education, we don't speak about the importance, for example, of the value of responsibility. We take responsibility. We don't speak about the importance of loyalty or sanctity. We demonstrate loyalty. We experience the sacred. So we're really shifting from speaking about ideas to experiencing them firsthand. So thanks, Shuki, for that understanding and explanation and definition of experiential Jewish education, because I remember distinctly the conversations that took place 10, 15 years ago with a few academics and one lonely grad student, that was me, that I was invited into this conversation. And the starting point for the conversation, interestingly enough, was experiential Jewish education or informal Jewish education, as then it was called, is basically you know it when you see it, especially when it came to good. Like you walk into a good summer camp, you know when this learning's taking place. You go into a youth group, you know it's taking place. And people were actually resisting trying to define it because they said, why try and define the amorphous? And then people started coming up with these terms. It's the magic of summer camp. And then we were trying to say, no, 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 you don't get it. It's not magic. Magic makes it sound like it's mysterious and can't be explained and can't be unpacked. But the reality is a magician carefully plans their tricks and leads the illusion and does all of this sort of stuff. So it's not magic. It's actually more of a science. And if it's a science, then we actually do need to define it and research it and give it data. So I'm wondering how you play with it. Is it just when you see it's happening or do you actually do feel a need to actually explain it and define it further? Yeah, I would say that, you know, the entire goal of M squared is to try and really capture the science of that magic, meaning that's, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And that's for a number of reasons, because I think that even when we were at that point where we were trying to define what is happening at summer camp, what's happening on Birthright, all those books that were coming out and kind of trying to capture it, it was helpful to a degree right? Because what I would call like a kind of descriptive research. And that's not really that helpful to professionals, right? Because what it was doing is saying, well, let's look at what's working, try and capture it, and then say, okay, if that's what's working, then let's capture it and do more of it. But there was very little that was being done around, well, what else can it be? Or what should it be? And not just what is happening right now, kind of in these incredible initiatives. We know that what's happening in experiential Jewish education works. We don't necessarily know why it works. And we're trying to really hammer that down. Like, is there specific content? Are there specific ways? What are the boundaries? Are there ethical standards? Look, I would still maintain that good experiential Jewish education, it comes from your guts. It comes from your kishkas. It's it's intuitive. You know when it's right. But that doesn't mean that we can't try and provide language and approaches to take what it is that excellent experiential Jewish educators are doing intuitively and give it language so it can be done deliberately. Because if it's only based on intuition, then we what we see happening all the time, people burn out. They're hired because they're charismatic and because they're creative. And you can't build a profession on charisma and creativity. It lasts three years, four years. You do build a profession based on knowledge, skill, tools. And the work that we're trying to do is to try and figure out, well, what is that knowledge? What are those skills? What are those tools so that you can impact the longevity of professionals, that you can elevate the field, make it better? Great. So we're coming to a really good understanding. And to our listeners here, there might not seem like there's a challenge or some sort of like machloket or division about to occur. But here's where I think there is a bit of a division between 
your and my understanding of these terms. So look, when I came to the understanding of experiential Jewish education, I was coming at it from a point of like the understanding of experiential education in a John Deweyan sense, where experience really allows learners to have these experiences and reflect upon those experiences to allow the learning to occur, which would allow them to reach their own conclusions. You go through an experience, you come out feeling this, you're feeling that, you're doing this, you're doing that, but ultimately the learner was driving the experience. So over time, you've taken a bit of a different stance here, not completely different, but it's a nuanced stance, which I think is important, which says that, well, you'll explain to the listeners, but my interpretation has been, actually, it's not as if the learners can come to any of their own conclusions. There's actually something driving this. And in some ways, you'll use that word as that's the Jewish part. But the Jewish part doesn't mean that it's like a be all and end all. But you're actually saying that there actually are things that we want to come out of this. And it's not like a learner free for all where any conclusion that they reach by themselves is permissible. Now, here, I've just paraphrased your argument because you contributed a chapter to the book that I edited many years ago. But let's talk about this outcomes piece of experiential Jewish education, as you see it, because I think it's integral to the work that you're doing. Sure. So I'll first start off by saying that I think that what you're pointing to is a challenge and a tension that's inherent not just to experiential Jewish education, but to the meeting point of experiential education as an approach, as a methodology, what you presented, the work of John Dewey, and any faith-based education or ideological education, right? Because the purest version of experiential education is you let each learner kind of chart their own path, create their own way, and arrive at whatever conclusions they arrive. And, you know, there was this incredible passage where Carl Rogers, right, one of the leading educational theorists of the previous century, he says, like, I've lost interest in being an educator because I feel that it gets in the way of good learning. But then when you juxtapose that with any type of faith-based education, right, like you're representing some form of ideology, you're representing some sort of vision of what life can and should be based on your faith, your religion, the ideas that you espouse. And then you've got this like meeting point of two very, very contradictory ideas that are supposed to happen within this one educational setting. On the one hand, let students figure everything out for themselves. And on the other hand, you actually want them to get somewhere. You want them to think about whether it's Judaism or any other ideology in a certain way. And you know that you can't have both. Now, as an educator, I want to say I strongly agree with your position that learners must be allowed to come to their own conclusions. I also don't think the opposite is possible. Right? One of the things that we always address in our program is this irrefutable truth that while we can always control what we teach, we can never control what our students learn. We'll never be inside their heads. And any attempt to think otherwise is futile, because even if we are certain that our learners are arriving at our prescribed conclusions, we never know what's really happening and what might still happen. Now, the question is, does the fact that my learner will reach their own conclusions mean that I should not have educational goals or learning outcomes? And there I maintain that the answer is no. Educators have a job to do, and that is to expose their learners to profound ideas and to powerful experiences. These ideas and experiences should be guided by an educational vision. What do I, as an educator, believe Judaism is and can be? I maintain that the responsibility of Jewish educators is to convey to learners in the most compelling ways the majesty and grandeur of Torah, of Jewish ideas, of Jewish practices, and of Jewish values, and to show them how these can guide their lives and their choices and their behaviors. Now, does having goals and convictions as an educator and working towards goals and outcomes mean that learners won't reach their own 
conclusions? No, absolutely not. Learners must make their own choices and they must make meaning for themselves. And as an educator, I need to enable this process to take place. So in short, yes, we must have a clear vision. We have to work towards realizing our goals. And at the same time, to hold that very contradictory truth that we have to inspire our learners to form their own. I think we're going to agree to disagree, right? Like, I don't think there's a problem with that because what you're describing for me, I don't think there's one piece of your equation which is important that not only will an educator in an experiential sense, in the in the John Dewey sense, allow learners to reach their own conclusion, but no matter what that conclusion is, the educator will actually value, respect, and honor that conclusion. In your understanding, they might reach a conclusion that you don't agree with, but you're actually going to say, probably not explicitly to the young person or to the learner themselves, actually, either we don't agree with your opinion or I as an educator failed because you didn't reach the conclusion I wanted you to reach, but you actually had an outcome in mind and you're going to be hit or miss as to whether you get it or, and this is the more controversial part, you manipulate an experience to such an extent that you're really giving the fallacy of choice in terms of like, you're saying that you could reach any possible conclusion, but the reality is you're loading up the stock so much in one possible conclusion that it becomes almost a version of indoctrination that you're experiencing something, but you're pretty darn sure that everybody's going to come out of it loving the majesty of Torah or loving Israel or whatever it might be because you've really stacked and loaded the experience to such an extent. Now, I know I'm mm. being, you know, pretty um, exaggeratory and, you know, facetious in some regards, but in some ways that could be an extrapolation of your argument. So it's like this. I, I think that, like, there's room here to, or, or even a necessity to be able to hold both truths, right? And that is, on the one hand, to be able to say, I, as an educator, believe in something and I'm going to work away at it. And at the same time, that I need to be able to love, respect, cherish my students, whatever decisions that they make, and to not lose that humanity and to not lose that perspective. I'm going to give a small, like a, an example that has like, it, it has less weight in some ways, maybe because like culturally, it is something which is so prevalent right now. Let's say if I'm going to say, I want, I strongly believe that my, um, I want my students, my children to recycle. Okay, because I know what's going on with the environment right now. I know where we are headed. I believe that morally and ethically, it is their responsibility. And this has a very, very specific educational outcome, right? And my child may choose not to recycle. Am I going to love my child less? Am I going to care for their own arguments, convictions, perspectives, and opinions? Yes. Do I feel like I wish my child would recycle, that I still want that, I still hold that? Yes. I mean, I see your example, I'm going to raise you one more. Like, I'm going to raise you an example that you and I are really both familiar with, and that's the notion of a Shabbaton. Yes. Or a Shabbat experience, which in some language has translated to, I want people to experience a halachic version of a Shabbat, so at least they know later on in life what they're rejecting or what they're accepting, but they're going to experience this notion of a halachically observant Shabbat. And we know many examples throughout our own biographies where that's been a really powerful example. And by the way, Shabbat's a really good example in general. You can teach about Shabbat, or you can do Shabbat, and they're very two different learning experiences. Experiences. But at the end of the Shabbaton experience, which has been guided by halachic principles, you've got some kids coming out saying, wow, that's amazing. I love that Shabbat. I want to incorporate it 52 weeks of the year, 
Some kids, I'll try 10 times a year. Some kids, well, that was the worst thing I ever experienced. So as an educator, is one kid seen as the success story and one kid seen as the like, I wish it could have gone a bit better. Maybe, I don't know, don't want to call the kid a failure, but like it didn't work so well. Or if 90% of the kids thought it was really positive, then it was a good experiential Jewish experience. How do you measure the success of something like a Shabbaton? The recycling one's an easy example in some ways. I would say that probably the outcome that I would least want Right, the most problematic outcome is if one of my learners walks away apathetic, right? Like, I don't care one way or another, this does nothing for me, right? Now, there are so many examples in whether it's Jewish education, but also in Jewish tradition and in Jewish texts, where the very idea, right, like, take the four sons in Passover. The most challenging one is the shame, know your daily show, that who does not know how to ask, right? The one that, like, you want to shake up and say, like, say something argue with it, disagree with me. I don't think that like the quote-unquote Rasha, rather the one that's walking away, is the one who is the problematic one. It's the one who like is completely apathetic. So I would welcome the ones who are going to say, I don't want this and I'll tell you why, right? And engage them in, well, then what is it that you're looking for and how are you looking for? This kind of leads to probably where, where this conversation is going to continue going. And that is, what are your goals as an educator? There are some educators who will say, no, I want you to be halakhically observant. Do I personally agree with that? No. Does that mean that they're doing necessarily a bad job if they are consistent with their values, if their students know that this is what they're walking into, and if this is how they're framing it, and there's that kind of a sense of transparency around that, will I do that? No. Do they, they, does that mean it's bad education? I don't think it's bad education. It's just different education. It's so interesting because when you said what would be the worst outcome of that experience, I thought you were going to say, and I'm from, this is maybe now this is me projecting, how I would have answered if every kid had come out of that Shabbat experience being halakhically observant because of that one weekend experience, for me, that would have been like the worst case scenario. I'm with you on that one as well. I'm with you on that one as well. Because again, it's not thinking for yourself. So it's either the apathy or the indoctrination, but you don't sense like the agency of your learners. Like you want to wake that you want them to be a part of the conversation. You want them to be asking questions. And I think that that's one of the things that's so beautiful in Jewish tradition, whether it's the way in which the Talmud is delivered, whether it's the way most educate, it's like, no, argue back, give a different perspective, come up with an alternative, bring something that refutes it. So do you really think that most Jewish educators today don't have goals and objectives, don't have outcomes that they want? Like, is that really how you see the field of Jewish education, that most people are actually acting in a vacuum without these goals and objectives? Or are they just goals and objectives that you don't recognize or see or agree with? Because I would think that most educators do have goals and objectives every time they step foot in front of learners. It's a great question. I would divide my answer up into two. One is I think that there's a fear around articulating goals and there's a certain sense of paralysis around it. You know, when we get into the 18 by 18, one of the things that we actually do is that we survey educators and organizations around which goals they and their organizations seek to accomplish. While a framework like the 18 by 18 um, on the one hand, can seem really restrictive. One of the things that you find out is that the majority of organizations and educators tend towards the same set of goals, around four of them. Things like tikkun olam, participating in the community, having Jewish friendships and Jewish role models. They're goals that are extremely important. I think we can't do without them, but they lack range. There are a lot more goals that I think 
whether Judaism represents or other ideas that we can expand to. And so I think that educators are setting educational goals, but I think that they tend to be very, very similar and very narrow very aligned with like the culture environment that we're living in and that there's a fear to expand to more either because they're countercultural or because we are afraid of making statements, making stronger kind of statements around what we can and should be. And that fear leads to a paralysis. And that is what I think we should be doing, like shaking, uh, like saying you get to actually have a vision and you shouldn't be afraid to set goals, even ones that are countercultural. All right, so just a bit of context for our listeners here. There's this thing called the 18 by 18, which are foundational outcomes that we'll link to in our show notes. This was a construct of outcomes by professors Barry Hazan and Ben Jacobs to try and articulate what general goals should be for Jewish education, trying to give real objectives. What are the 18 things that people by the age of 18 should know in order to be or know, feel or do in order to be part of the Jewish enterprise? Let's just bluntly put it like that. Shuki then wrote an article with Professor Ben Jacobs about why people are talking about these outcomes in terms of the shoulds of Jewish education. And I think I want to focus today's conversation less on what the 18 by 18 actually are and more about this concept of the should. I just do need to say, because this is important, is I think, Shuki, I think you've underestimated Jewish educators, and I do think you've um, undersold many of them in terms of the ability for them to articulate the goals. But I'm going to leave that as an aside, because that's a matter of like, there's no research really done here. So it's sort of like the, the ones I meet might say this, and the ones you meet might say this. I don't know. But I think there's an underestimation, because I don't really know anyone who walks into an environment which says, at the end of this experience, I don't want young people or people in general could be adults as well, to know, feel, or do something differently than when they came into that experience. I mean, that's the purpose of education, that they actually do that. Whether they've articulated it in a real framing in a language that we all agree to understand or can even articulate, that's another story. And I think you're talking a bit about that as well. But I do think educators do that. But my bigger concern here is that the should part, because there's a difference between having learning outcomes, which you want people to try and actually begin to achieve or experience. But when someone comes out and use the word should, now you're putting a bit of a, a more subjective flavor on this is what the Jewish people need to know, feel, or do in order to do something differently. As someone's actually coming out with a should statement. How do you navigate this notion of shoulds with your understanding of experiential Jewish education? First of all, I want to say that our first venture, M Squared's mind, uh, venture into the 18 by 18 was to say, what would it look like to bring a framework like this to practice, right? I'm a practitioner. He has a, a framework that was written by two academics. What would it look like? What what kind of impact on the field could something like this have and what can and should do? What would its purpose be? And then as a result of that, we wrote this article, kind of what we learned from that. I do not believe that the purpose of the 18 by 18 framework or any such framework, is its full adoption. The authors themselves might disagree. I do believe that the purpose of the framework is to serve as a jumping board and to compel educators to consider at least three critical questions. One is, what goals should each educator or each organization set and work towards? These might be one or more of the goals in the framework. It might be other goals as well. The second thing is how each educator should seek to accomplish these goals. Right now, I want to distinguish for a moment between the noun of the goal. The noun might be the tikkun olam or Israel or Jewish culture and the verb. 
right? This is what we call like kind of the power of the verb. Now, the 18 by 18 framework might suggest, suggests one of the goals is engage in Jewish rituals, holidays, and events, right? This is one thing that a Jew, a young Jew should be able to do, or have had an experience like that. But an individual educator or an, an educational organization might choose for reasons pertaining to her own vision and her own community to replace the verb engage with with a verb recreate or observe, right? So it might come out, recreate Jewish rituals, holidays, and events, or on the kind of flip side, observe Jewish rituals, holidays, and events. So the authors, for whatever reason, chose engage in Jewish rituals, holidays, and events. The noun might be the same, the verb changes everything. But I do think in this instance, an educator should have both. What is the goal that I'm trying to reach? And how is it that I'm going to reach towards it? The, the final thing that I want to add here is that the framework also compels me to consider, this goes back to a previous point, how I as an educator or an organization might expand the goals of Jewish education currently being met. And the idea of the goals listed in 18 by 18 is that while initially they might come across as restricting, I think that we can be reaching more goals. And I view the 18 by 18 framework as an invitation to expand and diversify the goals of Jewish education. So who gets to decide the shoulds of Jewish education? My answer is that each individual Jewish educator should. And that if each educator worked hard to set their own goals based on their learners and their vision and their current realities, we'd be in a great place. And that if we expand and diversify the range of Jewish education goals currently being met, we'd be even in a better place. I want, I think that the 18 by 18 framework is an invitation to take the setting of Jewish education goals and working towards them a lot more seriously. So I just want to really try and pull back the curtain here a bit for the listeners, because I think it's an important piece here. And I'm not trying to just create controversy for the sake of controversy. And I'm not trying to say that season three of adapting is going to like deliberately just go out of its way to create challenges that aren't there. But I also can't let Shuki and I leave this conversation without at least acknowledging like that we're both deeply committed to this field. We're actually really good friends and colleagues as well. There's a division here. And I think the listeners need to understand what's taking place here because all the answers, the eloquent answers that Shuki's given don't give me any, any more faith that experience of the learner is what's actually taking precedent here. In fact, the opposite was just stated, that it's the educator deciding the shoulds and therefore the outcomes. And in some ways, I feel as someone who's contributed to the understanding of experiential Jewish education, that an article that's entitled The Shoulds of Jewish Education actually damages the field in some way rather than actually enhances it. And this is an ongoing debate. It's made more complicated, and I think we can't ignore this, is who wrote the 18 by 18 outcomes and who commissioned the 18 by 18 outcomes is an understanding like where's the future of Jewish education, particularly now in this case of North America, but I think globally, where's it heading and who's actually controlling that? And have we as Jewish educators actually given over too much authority and responsibility to philanthropists to actually begin dictating the agenda of what Jewish education ought to look like. Like For me, these are really highly problematic issues and both Shuki and I are recipients of these same foundations and like we're completely proud to be associated with all of them. But this is a real challenge for all of us moving forward in terms of the actual agenda of the Jewish people and Jewish education. And by putting the word should and the word we don't want to use, ought, you ought to know this, you ought to do this, we avoid that one at all costs, but should somehow become acceptable. It's no longer about individual enterprise. It's you or somebody else saying you should be this in order to be better, which equates to 
more like what I want you to be like. That's almost the antithetical understanding of these terms. Well, I don't know if I agree with that because I think that when you're speaking about, like, again, as a Jew and as a Jewish educator, I do believe that Judaism has something really powerful to give the world. And that is not just a better version of yourself. It is actually a model for what an individual can and should be, what a community can and should be, and what we should represent. There are certain standards for what that looks like, for how we behave, for how we act. I also, again, as someone who has a certain, um, thinks about Judaism, not just from a cultural perspective, but also from a spiritual or theological one. There's the place of like relationship with God and relationship with the country and relationship with people. All of those represent a vision of a certain type of life that extends beyond just be the best version of yourself, but belong to something, contribute towards something and be a proud member of that something. Shuki, why I've enjoyed this conversation so much is because we've touched on so many of the keywords. I think irrespective of what outcomes you may or may want the learners to achieve or to experience themselves, as long as the educator has some sort of explicit intentionality with what they want to be able to do and achieve, combined with that last word that you use, which is respect, I think we're really coming towards a real understanding of what the power of experiential Jewish education can be. And I think the biggest thing we can hope for as a result of listening to today's episode is that people don't just come out saying, oh, I agree with him, I agree with him, I agree with neither, whatever. Read the articles, have a look at some of what we're talking about, and just don't be apathetic. And as an educator, if you want your students to be engaged, like Shuki was talking about before, you too should be engaged in these conversations and really coming up with more intentionality and be able to articulate your theories and visions and intended outcomes or aspirations for Jewish education. I'm not going to let Shuki get away without answering the one question that I ask all of our guests, which is for you to pay tribute to one educator who has made a considerable impact on you and your life as well. So I'm going to cheat. It's not going to be one. I, I was, I'm extremely, extremely fortunate to have been born into a family of educators, both my parents, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, my wife, my mother-in-law. Uh, I grew up in an environment in which not being an educator was an anomaly and that working in the field of education was not a difficult choice for me. On the contrary, if I would have run into another field, that would have been a difficult choice. And so the tribute that I pay is to the Masoret, the tradition that I was raised into, one in which passing the beauty of Judaism across and between generations is a calling and privilege. I would pay tribute to the ways in which education happened and continues to happen in the families that I'm a part of. Ones that are relational and inquisitive and challenging and profound and demanding. And I pay tribute to what I inherited and to what I hope to pass on. This is going to be for sure a topic of a further conversation. Is, is Jewish education a genetic disposition or is it actually something <laughs> which is a grown up in the household? So I really want to thank you, Shuki, for today's conversation, for being featured on today's episode of Adapting. For those of you who are just wondering, is this the first time that Shuki and I have engaged in such a conversation? <laughs> it's probably like maybe in the dozens of times. Sometimes it's at a conference center. Sometimes it's at a, in, a, in a hotel. Sometimes it's over a beer or a meal. But these are the things that Shuki and I talk about quite a lot and like respectfully agree and disagree and have much affection for the work that both of us are, are doing in each other's fields. I hope it's, I'm assuming and hoping that it's mutual as well. But really, it's great to learn more about you. And I really encourage all of our listeners to go and 
and read some of the articles that were referred to or linked to in our show notes today, um, especially the, the article that was co-authored with Ben Jacobs and Shuki on uh, Jewish education should have shoulds in the recent edition of Sapir, funded by the Maimonides Foundation, which I think is really important. Today's episode was produced by Dina Nussenbaum and Gabriel Weinstein. The show's executive producers are myself, Karen Cummins, and Nessa Lieben. And our show, as always, is engineered and edited by Nathan J. Vaughan of NJV Media. If you enjoyed this conversation on adapting, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or even better, share it with a friend or a colleague or anybody who you think is interested in experiential Jewish education or Jewish education in general. As always, to learn more about the Jewish Education Project, visit jewishedproject.org where you can learn more about our mission, history and staff and the many organizations like M Squared that we partner with all of the time. And as always, we are a proud partner of UJA Federation of New York. Thanks everybody for listening and wishing you all well.